Welcome to WDFG, broadcasting Dear Final Girl, the advice and horror podcast where we dish on life and other scary movies. Every final girl has a story. So does her Jason, her Freddy, her Michael. So do we horror fans. This episode is part of our adjunct series, Origin Stories, where horror fans recount the horror movie memories that made them who they are today. This week's origin story is from Martin Shelby. First loves, the question is laid before you, when's from this love of horror? As if it's a bit of an oddity or not normal. First, I don't consider it to be an oddity. There are literally millions of people who love horror. We have our own bent nature, sure, but so do cliff divers. Second, it's a bit like asking me why I love the color black or why I love barbecue, but fungus, that stuff marketed under the only slightly more palatable name, mushroom, makes my stomach churn. I don't know, barbecue tastes good. Horror stories taste good. They're just natural to who I am. But as with any journey, there are those things that push you along the path. They are often testaments of the era and times that saw our youth. They may be things that stand the test of time or now evoke rueful shakes of the head. But either way, they had that nostalgic hold on you, a special place in your memory, because they helped shape your path and sparked that passion within. Before we bungled our lives with the notion of romantic love and tangled relationships, it was stories and imagination that fueled us. They were our first loves. My my earliest loves included memories of racing home after school to catch the 4.30 movie when it was Monster Week. That meant Godzilla, from the time now known as the Showa era. There were other themed weeks, like Planet of the Apes week, which didn't have nearly the hold of my imagination as rubber-suited men stomping miniature cities to bits. I would come to love the social and philosophical commentary Planet of the Apes dished forth, especially the first movie, but only when I was older. In its inception, the first Godzilla movie, A Black and White Beauty, was itself an allegorical commentary on the dangers of atomic power, but I don't remember the nasty spliced American adaptation ever airing on Monster Week. If it had, allegorical commentary was not what I was watching for. I still love me some Godzilla mayhem, though the movies have been much more missed than hit over the decades, especially the later Showa-era kid-centered ones, which got very cornball. Even as a child, when I saw Godzilla use his atomic breath to fly and fight Hedera, I thought, this makes no aerodynamic or physical sense. Not in those exact words, of course. In child tongue, that translates to, that's stupid. But I kept right on watching, because Godzilla. As I said, this love came naturally, if inexplicably, to me. I grew up in a tiny Midwestern town. Exposure to a wider world of experience was harder to come by then. Nobody in my family, a small nucleus comprised of parental units and one older brother, cared anything for horror, science fiction, or fantasy. There was no hard push along the path there. I am, however, eternally grateful to them for letting me find and be my own person and feeding my imagination with comic books and such. Outside of school, I had one friend in walking distance, which consequently made him my best friend, except for when we weren't. Then I had a dog. Now, straight up, I was not the verbose giant you were reading or listening to as a youngling. In second grade, I was failing math and language at year end. There was talk of holding me back to repeat the grade. So I spent that summer with a tutor named Janice to get my skills up to par. Unlike my forgettable second grade teacher, who I look at in old yearbooks and wonder who the hell is that, Janice was awesome. Janice was a fucking teacher. 
A family friend, I still have a picture of her drinking a beer on our front step. And Janice knew how to bribe imaginative young boys. The tempting prize? A National Geographic chock full of dinosaurs with a huge fold-out section. I'd like to report it was something awesomely horror-related. But having just passed the precipice of second grade, not much of that was being served my direction. Dinosaurs were as close as Nat Geo came to monsters, Godzilla, and dragons. And in a child's mind... Mythic reptilian creatures, real and imagined, lived just across the street from the likes of Dracula. They were my gateway drug. I got that magazine. The mental blocks holding me back were demolished. I became a voracious reader, something my family still joke about in an approving way due to the number of books I accumulated. Unlike Lewis, an interview with a vampire, I guess it's Louie, I didn't need to die to be born into a strange new world of weeping shadows. I just needed someone to help me over an edge. I doubt Janice had any idea where she was sending me, but she is positive proof that sometimes all it takes is the right person to boost you over life's barriers. I had always been a visually oriented child, but breaking that reading barrier allowed my imagination, my first loves, to truly be unleashed. By junior high, I was reading Stephen King. The written word drew me in, and I still regard it as the superior form of storytelling. But we are visual creatures, after all, and there's nothing to quite match watching the written word brought to celluloid life. My earliest theatrical horror film, I recall seeing, was with my best friend when his older sister took us to see Jaws. I was seven and he was an elderly eight. The memory of my friend's exit from the movie is distinct. It was right when the guy in the rowboat coming to help the kids is attacked and a lovely severed leg is shown sinking to the ocean floor. I didn't see my friend after that, and it's probably just as well I didn't stick around to see what happened to Quint near the end. But I did. This movie, along with John Williams' score, has definitely struck as stuck as a first love. Williams' music would feature in another iconic movie that would change my life forever. I can't begin to overstate how influential Star Wars to my imagine was to my imagination as a child. As soon as that dark-clad figure with his pneumatic breathing stepped through the blown entry hatch, I knew who the biggest badass in the galaxy was. I was galvanized. Somewhere in those mixed-up years between New Hope and Empire, my dark little heart would write a short story with illustrations about how Princess Leia leaves Luke Skywalker to join Darth Vader and rule the galaxy. It was epic. I also wrote a story, White Death, about a surfer-munching shark. Can't imagine what inspired that. I can't imagine a childhood without Star Wars, but I don't wish to. What a lesser world. Conversely, now in January 2020, I can also imagine a world without the latest trilogy and believe we would be better off. Best not to get rolling on that. What was great throughout every Star Wars movie, though, was the music. John Williams showed me how important a score or soundtrack was to cinema. I am to this day certain that what pushed the movie Halloween into popularity is the iconic theme. It's pretty garden variety stuff without it. Another big first love was the movie Dragon Slayer with the dragon Vermithrax pejorative. Since imitated, never duplicated. The sheer anger that came through that stoic, fixed, reptilian face upon finding her dead progeny was palpable to me through the big screen. Yep, this dragon is ready to kick some ass. Dragon Slayer wasn't exactly a light fare. It had a dark grittiness to it that resonated with how I viewed fantasy. And was that a naked girl on the water? Heart be still. 
is I began escaping the years of radioactive monsters and man-eating sharks. Darker worlds awaited, beckoning me onward, and I began to soak my mind more in the world of horror and the supernatural. My first love, Dracula, on the big screen was Franklin Jella. Originally released in 1979, Dracula also starred Laurence Olivier and Donald Pleasance. Langella's suave and sophisticated portrayal of the Count would embody how I imagined the legend for years to come. The guy really didn't lose his cool until he gets hooked in the back, enough to ruin anyone's calm state. For me, he was Dracula. And, given the movie's somewhat ambiguous ending, he remained Dracula. Damn straight I was rooting for the vampire. Other vamp movies have surpassed this in my mind today. Lost Poise... Bram Stoker's Dracula, Only Lovers Left Alive, and Let the Right One In spring to mind. But Langella's Dracula remains with me. Trivia point. Like Bill Lugosi, Langella never wore fangs in either his stage or movie portrayals of the Count. Vampires, often visually alluring and intelligent, never scared me as a kid. That honor belonged to one thing, werewolves. I don't mean some guy running around with a fuzzy face called the Wolfman. No, I mean fucking werewolves. In a sterling example of how little either my parents or Tiny Town Theater paid attention to what I watched, I saw an American Werewolf in London when I was maybe 13 or 14. And for the first and really last time, something truly terrified me. Because there on the screen was the epitome, epitome of what I imagined a werewolf should be. And that howl, OMG. Had my friend been with me, he may have been able to get a little back. As a couple times, I decided the guy working the ticket booth was probably lonely. And for a few minutes after, when I would walk home after dark from my friend's house, I would move a little faster. Or run. Even so, I was consistently drawn back into the theater that night, even if it was to hang at the top of the aisle, peeking around the corner. And I saw the movie, well, most of it, to the end. American Werewolf in London remains in my top five horror flicks and definitely is my first love werewolf movie. There's been a lot done with CGI transformations with our bestial furry fang friends since, but nothing I've seen to match David's transformation in that London flat. While Darth Vader may have ruled the universe of my youth, in my teenage years, Fred Krueger was the ruler of the horrorverse. The idea of a malevolent being that could stalk and kill you in your dreams was a powerful and wonderful idea to me. Freddy was far more interesting than a... Michael Myers, or Jason Voorhees. For starters, he could freaking talk. There might be something terrifying about an implacable, silent stalker that won't stop because they're driven by whatever. But Freddy, Freddy had panache. Freddy had ambition. Freddy was the hip killer. At least as you kind of push back the fact he was first conceived as a child molester. But the original Nightmare on Elm Street also remains a first love. The franchise movies quickly became pretty cookie-cutter material for me. After the first installment, they became as much about finding interesting ways to kill teens on screen as whatever contrived story was cooked up to bring the baddies back. Thus, the heady rush of teen slasher flicks gave way in my mind to movies such as Alien, The Thing, The Fly, and more. For my world had suddenly opened to a plethora of cinematic beauties. You see, something miraculous happened when I turned 13. We got cable, and we got HBO. Many a night was spent watching television after the parental units had fallen asleep to see illicit movies and shows like The Hitchhiker, preceded by the big silver HBO logo floating in over a city to dramatic music. 
HBO was a huge boon to expanding one's viewing repertoire when you lived in small-town America. Here I would first see, for instance, things like Natasha Kinski's boob shrink in Cat People when she turns into a panther after having sex. Exciting times when you're a teen. Those are just a few of my first loves. I know you have yours. Quite a few were left out, like Poltergeist and The Shining, but we can only cover so much. The great thing is they will always be my first loves. People may come and go, but horror and fantasy, these worlds of shadow, of imagination, that's for life. They are my constant. They don't care if I discover new loves. They'll still be waiting in the wings ready for me to even inform me and provide insight about that new love I'm watching. Now, no, they won't fix a cup of coffee in the morning or butter an English muffin for me. And I have to say that's a lovely deal when you get it. But if you need something to curl up and spend a dark evening with, to let your imagination loose, be it a book or movie, your first loves will always be there waiting. Indulge. Okay, wow. Thanks, Martin. Yeah, thank you, Martin. I told him, Martin is a friend of mine, I said, this is this is the first origin story that we have had that is a wider survey, yeah. really, of a lot of different influences and a lot of, in a lot of different formats, which I thought was really cool. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is titled First Loves, and in no way did we plan ahead of time that we would have it perfectly lined up as our pre-Valentine's Day episode. (laughs) But that is when this is airing, so that that was cool. Yeah, That was cool. Um, And kind of touches on a number of, of, a couple of times that he mentioned how horror and a love of horror and sci-fi and fantasy can be a constant in a way that sometimes the people that you count on the most are not. Right, yeah. So we can all relate to that for sure. Yeah. Dracula is um, is always going to be there. To Dracula's always going to be there. Yeah, yeah, and He'll you know you. maybe more. He might do more if you let him. Uh, yeah. I mean, Some heavy sometimes petting. if you don't let him. Yeah, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, kind of, I made notes. You know, as as we went along. Mm-hmm. First thing Martin mentions is is seeing that or the original Godzilla, mm-hmm. black and white beauty. Um, the other thing I loved about it was that it showed on the 4.30 movie. <laughs> and I think we all remember a certain, for, for me being a little bit older, a certain magic that TV had because it was more limited. Mm-hmm. There were just certain things that you could only see at certain times and right. you could only see them once. Right. And it made it more special in some ways. Yeah, pre pre Hulu, pre even what TiVo. Yeah, and DVRing and things like that. Yeah. yeah, there was, and it wasn't just for movies. It was you know, did you see this TV show last night? Did you you know? And the water cooler talk now yes. is, and I see that a lot still at work. Regarding shows like The Bachelor and like serial reality shows, that's what the people at my office are talking about. Not, it's not like dramas or definitely not movies. Movies, you stream them now. Right. And, so. and anybody could be watching anything at any at mm-hmm. any time. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe 
certain series like Game of Thrones. Oh, that's a good point. That's a I, very good point. I also remember, and I never watched this show, and I, I like have no desire to watch this show, but I know that the TV show Lost oh, right. yeah. was huge, and that was a big water cooler. Right. I never watched TV. that when it was coming out, and then I watched the first several seasons on streaming, and then after a certain point... You're, I got to the point where I was like, but everybody says the ending is awful and I just can't invest anything more in this for an unsatisfying ending. You I know? hear you. you I know. hear you. Yeah. I had a, I, you know, long after Downton Abbey had mm. wrapped as a TV show and mm-hmm. I didn't watch it even though I thought, no, oh, I would probably like that. Then yeah. I finally did and I binged it and I binged it. So much so continuously that by the time I got to the end, it's like I did not even fucking care anymore. Right. I'm like, I had oversaturated Just willpower. Yeah. yeah, which you said, that was not the TV experience back in the day. No, no. And the... I'm, I'm interested in this as well because the... In Martin's story as well, because so many of his first loves are not the traditional horror... Thanks. And we talked about this with, was it Robin's horror origin story where we talked about how, like, I may just be um, asking for people to, you know, hate on me, but uh, <laughs> like Godzilla never really seemed like a horror movie to me. Um, same thing with Jaws. They are scary movies, but um, but maybe that's the gateway drug, you know. And he does he does talk about that, although in relation to reading, which I thought mm-hmm. was interesting. Mm-hmm. Before which was my gateway, right? I remember us talking about that with Stephen King. I mean, Stephen King. Uh, yeah. He had to be so many so many kids. That gateway, mm-hmm. that gateway drug mm-hmm. when it came to scary books. Right. I mean, he, I just think he, he certainly was for me. I do remember, because I was, as I was thinking about Stephen King, I believe I was reading Agatha Christie before Stephen King, mm-hmm. but not much before. Right. And then she kind of like quickly fell to the wayside, you know. Once I had read Pet Cemetery, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I do like yeah. I do love Agatha. Yeah, Christie. sorry, <laughs> you know, Murder on a Train is nothing compared <laughs> to reanimated cats. Come on, yeah, and, and babies. Yeah, ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> um, So yeah, he talks about, and I love it, like. Um, because with so many of these stories, you know, it is tied up in memories of family, mm-hmm. friends, specific life experiences. And so Martin talks about, like, hey, I was having trouble in school. Mm-hmm. And then here was this awesome family friend who is also an awesome teacher named mm-hmm. Janice. And she pulls out that National Geographic I really dinosaur. thought it was going to go boobies. Me too, because <laughs> so, he said something about, like, oh, a, a way that, you know, she knew how to Entice, pique a young, yeah. a young boy's imagination. I'm like, what the hell did she do? <laughs> I mean, I looked at the National Geographic for the boobies. Like, Me, <laughs> right. 
right? That was like, yeah, that was like elementary porn, mm-hmm. I guess, mm-hmm. you know. Which, when you think about it now, like, how awful is, is that what we were doing? Yeah, I mean, the people at National Geographic had have to know what they're doing. Yes. You know, yeah. that <laughs> there's a chance that little kids are going to see it, you know, differently. Just like, you know, little kid, <laughs> kids will see dinosaurs as monsters like they're fantastical beings yes and like weren't they originally when the first dinosaur skeletons were found i could be making this up but weren't wasn't it like it was considered to be a hoax and people were like either this is a hoax or this is proof that sea monsters live or dragons lived or whatever that like the old timey Fables. Right, like the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember that, but it sounds like something that humans would do, you yeah. know? Like, <laughs> giant bone, there's your proof, dragons lived. <laughs> right, and I love how Martin talks about how things get commingled in, a, in our young minds. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, dinosaurs and Godzilla and Dracula, they're all like, I mean, they they might as well be neighbors. Right, yeah, yeah. And it reminded, like only just now, it reminded me of this original, I think, film on the streaming service Shudder, which mm-hmm. is all horror-dedicated, called, I think, Summer of 84. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, you know, pulling off that Stranger Things vibe, you know, going back to childhood in the 80s. But one of the kids, there are some murders that are happening, and one of the kids becomes convinced that his neighbor, who also happens to be a policeman, is the murderer. Oh, okay. And, of course, nobody... I thought you were going to say, is a dinosaur. No, (laughs) no, I'm making a big... big Lizard people, go on. (laughs) It's that whole, like, when you're a kid... That feeling of like, hey, this this is real. Like, mm-hmm. why? And and of course, adults, you're not gonna you're not gonna believe me. And when you're watching those shows as a kid, I mean, you very of course you identify with the children. And the underlying belief is like, hey, as kids, we're still in this magic world. Mm-hmm. We can still see th- we can still see things that the adults can't see because they grew up and they don't believe anymore right right so that that was a great part of being a kid mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. sure mm-hmm. um i think for myself personally reading and watching movies kind of keeps that alive yes that like you can spend you know two hours on a saturday believing something wholeheartedly and it's safe and it's not, um, there's no consequences, you know? If you walk into work tomorrow and you're, well, you're not going in tomorrow, but. <laughs> I have off to, we're recording this the Sunday before Martin Luther King Day. Yeah. I'm off. Yay. <laughs> uh, but if I went into work tomorrow and started talking about um, Bigfoot in earnest, people would start to look at you a little weird and, you know, wonder if you're doing okay. But, um, you know, within the safety of fiction, you get to, you get to live something. Yeah. And I do believe, I, I think it is important to maintain a sense of 
wonder. Mm-hmm. I think that horror and sci-fi and fantasy movies, for those of us, whether it was movies or whether it was fiction, mm-hmm. that when you gravitate toward that, you're kind of hooked for life. And whether it's always on some level a nostalgia trip, or really, as as Martin says, the the new loves um, and the old loves kind of can converse with one another in right. your mind. They can feed your imagination mm-hmm. mutually, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's that's really cool to think about. Um, so it was interesting because you know gateway drug that term comes up a lot with horror. Like, mm-hmm. what was your portal? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of like the whole premise of this origin stories or origin stories yeah. series. Um, and there's also the the companion theme of gateway people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, you know, the friend um, that you developed a love of horror because of or with mm-hmm. or parents who were um allowed you to explore right um one of the things that martin said was when he talked about janice his teacher is he said i didn't need to die to be born to strange new worlds i just needed someone to help me right and i think um that's a really important concept as a kid, when you're introduced to anything that captures your imagination. Yeah. You know, what also got me was that um, uh, he mentioned that his parents let him read comics, comic books. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, so as a former teacher, and teacher of English, <laughs> like, I am all for, like, my poor nieces and nephews, all they ever get for Christmas or birthdays are books. Good for you. <clears throat> but, you know, they're probably like, Ugh, you know, books and socks, right? Um, but the the idea that somebody, a kid can be interested in comic books and comic books are reading. Yes. Graphic novels are reading. Um, so... I'm just going to pat myself on the back. I gave my niece and nephew who were into kind of comic books and superheroes. I gave them a couple of like, you know, younger grade graphic novels for Christmas because I was like, yes, you know, thankfully my sister-in-law is like, they're into comic books. Great. Cool. Let me, let me get you all the comic books. That is awesome. Like finding those characters that speak to some part of you can be a gateway to what people consider as like, you know, real reading just the same way that, you know, Godzilla, the monster movies are going to be a gateway to real horror. And, you know, I'm not, I don't know what I was meaning by that, but you know, like I'm, I'm not, right. I'm not different picking horror. on Martin. Yeah. Different, yeah, yeah. Different horror. And, uh, I also really like, so I feel like I have not seen like any of the movies that he talked Now, about. you've seen Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm-mm. What? No. You haven't seen Nightmare on Elm Street. I, ha- I know. I'm sorry like, I'm doing this to you right now. Okay. It's okay. It's <laughs> okay. This is not my story. This is Martin's story. But no, I have never seen an American Werewolf in London. I've never seen Dragon Slayer. I have seen Jaws. I don't think I've fully seen Godzilla, so maybe that's why I don't 
consider it to be a, you know, that I consider it to be a monster movie. But no, I never saw Nightmare on Elm Street. I have seen portions of it. Right. But I have not sat down and like seen the whole thing. Well, I will totally cop, even though horror is my life. I have a lot of catching up to do. I have some really big gaps in my viewing because mm-hmm. once I get hooked on one thing, I tend to watch it over mm-hmm. and over again. Mm-hmm. So I have never seen an American Werewolf in London in mm-hmm. its entirety. Ooh. Um, I do plan to rectify that very soon. Um, I have also not seen Dragon Slayer and intend to rectify that very okay. soon yeah. as well. Um there was something about, okay, these things had a bit of a, um, they're separated a bit in terms of his narrative, but for some reason, I'm thinking now about, like, points of access. Mm-hmm. So, I think most kids, if you grow up in a small town, then the library is huge. Right. Cable, if you can mm-hmm. get it. Mm-hmm. is huge. HBO is like, it is like the fucking holy grail mm-hmm. of of kiddom. I had a very similar experience. I'll kind of touch more on that. But also, you know, for many people also, if you, if you didn't have cable, then the video store. Yeah. That yeah. was huge. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe if you didn't have access to certain things, that's where you had that gateway person, maybe the friend who's... The parents who, let them. Exactly. Yeah. Let them, or they had cable and you didn't. Mm-hmm. But um, HBO was huge for me, too. Mm-hmm. Did you guys have? Uh, on and off, we had it when I was a kid, and I think it d- just depended on whether we could pay for it. And um, when he talked about the uh, logo coming in over the... It gives me chills. It does. Like, just hearing the words, I, like, started to play it in my head. I almost went, (laughs) da-da-da-da-da-da. When I, so I'm about 10 years older than you, right? And so when we had HBO, HBO was relatively new. Mm -hmm. And then it, like... Like Martin, it. I don't know how we had HBO. I don't know how in God's name Mm-mm. we had cable or HBO because my dad was such a cheapskate. Um, but they also really we we grew up watching TV together, so mm-hmm. I think TV mm-hmm. culture was huge for them too. Yeah, you know. So, uh, but I'm grateful because I did the same thing. I mean, I remember watching. Flash Gordon from like 83, I think, which has got to be one of the cheesiest movies ever made. But to this day, I love that movie. Like, and Queen did the soundtrack. I was, okay, I was just asking. Yeah, okay, so I have seen that. Um, Flash. Ah. He'll save every one of us. (laughs) Savior of the universe. Um, Another cool thing that Martin did in his piece was talk about the power of the score and the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. I didn't. I that just kind of was an organic little segue that I did. I didn't Uh even plan Ah. that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought that was that was really cool. I gotta. 
I gotta respectfully disagree that Halloween might have been a dud without John yeah. Carpenter's score. I just love that movie so much, and I've seen it so many times. But also, my God, that score. I mean, you can't... It's one of right. the most famous pieces of music mm-hmm. ever. Um, but music does do a lot. Right, right. It definitely does. It's um, hard to... Especially with such a visual medium um, where your eyes are engaged to have a second sense engage like like your ears it just adds that second uh layer of verisimilitude you know that that you are you know feeling these things with these people um yeah absolutely monsters and i think um you know another thing he mentioned was how he was also inspired to write Mm -hmm. as a result of watching film. So he wrote the um, Star Wars story about (laughs) Princess Leia being like, screw you, Luke, you know, I'm running off with Darth. You know, of course, you know, we come to learn later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, he did want to rule the universe with one of his children. So I'm going to not think about, you know, the potential incest part of that and think more about the, hey, you know, it's just keeping it, you know, ruling ruling the the galaxy as father and daughter. Mm -hmm. Why not? Um, That, I was, I did not start writing until... Other than just the essays you had to do in school, right. even in L- even in middle school, um, until I was in high school. Yeah, me but neither. I love it. I love it when I hear stories of kids who are like, I- "I'm going to do that. Like, mm-hmm. I want to do that." Mm-hmm. And there's a great documentary. It's not really a documentary. It was like a TNT. Uh, I think it was a TNT or Turner Classic Movies thing that they used to do back in the day. And it was called A Night at the Movies, and I think different people would host it, and there was one with Stephen King. Mm -hmm. And he did this kind of survey of horror. And he talked about, as a kid in the 50s, going to the movie theater, seeing this movie called, I think it was Invasion of the Star Monsters. Mm -hmm. And even as like an, I think he was eight, he was aware of his reaction he he was aware of his reaction and the audience reaction to the film with even as a kid enough distance to have the thought well i wonder if i could do that mm-hmm. i wonder if i could write something that would scare people and yes sir yeah yes, you, you, yeah, can. you can mm-hmm. <laughs> yes you can <laughs> um i'm kind of going down the 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 list of what he covered in order, but do you want to jump? Do you want to jump in on anything? No, um, I think that well, something that jumped out. I say I say no, and then I start talking. Yeah, <laughs> okay. um, the the idea that Freddie could talk. Yeah, that is really interesting to me. Like I've seen some other movies. Is it Leprechaun with um? Uh, Jennifer. 
Jennifer Aniston. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We remember us watching it when we had that writers' weekend at Henry Horton State Park. <laughs> I think we watched. Yep. Yeah. That yeah. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. we were talking about like their little guest jean, her little guest yes, jean shorts. Absolutely. Yeah. It was because <laughs> we couldn't find a, a Hallmark movie. Right. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the idea that a monster can talk. You know, Jaws doesn't talk. Right. And he that's part of why he's so scary. Like, the idea that somebody can talk should mean that you can talk them off of the ledge, right? Every villain in a thriller movie eventually comes and gives you their motivations. Well, why did you do this? Well, you know, you, you know... I you had did to get this. the money for my yeah. insurance scheme, and right, if it weren't for you darn kids... Exactly, exactly. So, like, <laughs> a monster who can talk is entirely different because you can sort of empathize with them a little bit. And then, then the horror, you become part of that horror. You become part of the, like, oh... Shit, could I be like Freddy? Could oh, I be like Louie an in an interview out. with a vampire? Could I become the monster too? Mm. That's a great call out. And I think I never thought before about just the silentness of certain monsters, the silentness of the early, you know, like he said, Michael Myers. Mm-hmm. The, the fact that Michael and Jason did not talk made them terrifying. And then once we'd had... And they're both behind them, masks. Right. And then you've got Freddy, who, unfortunately, his his face is his mask. I mean, that's his, yeah. he's a, mm-hmm. you know, because he was burned. Um, that is a, that's a really great call out. And maybe... I don't know. You know, we get in... Another thing that Martin talks about is... I kind of wrote in the margin sort of like sympathy with the devil. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like where you're like, hey, the villain is cool. I relate to the villain. I like the villain best. Mm -hmm. He or she is a badass. Mm -hmm. And when you have... When the villain is articulate, you know, many years later, the next big thing in... In a terrifying film, you know, flash forward 1990, Silence of the Lambs. Right. 91. I was just going to say that I was talking with somebody about um, Ted Bundy last night. And she's like, you know, Ted Bundy is so much different than all the other serial killers because he didn't have a... Um, like the the same awful childhood. And I think that's part of why he is so fascinating to a lot of people is that he seems so normal and yet he just did these awful things. And I think that that's part of it, what I said earlier, that, you know, could I do this? Right. Like, what would have to happen in my life for that to happen? Um he did have a terrible childhood, though. Yeah, I mean, he really did. I mean, I'm not. This is not. I'm not. Being yeah, he a t- wasn't t- like the the, the the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to get into that yeah, game. Uh, yeah, but I, I like the the stuff. Like he wasn't abused. He wasn't. He was though. Really? He was. See, he. Okay, I know we're going off on a tangent. But he, you know, one of the main traumas of his early life was finding out that the entire time. 
that he thought he had an older sister, that that was actually his mother. Right. He found out he was an illegitimate child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. While his, his, when he was a very young child, they lived with his mother's parents. Right. So he was raised with his grandparents Uh as his parents, but he thought they really were. That's what he was told. Uh By all the accounts I've read, his grandfather was an incredibly violent man. Oh, okay. Would like, you know, fling the family cat against the wall. I mean, mm. he, it, there was, right, right, there right. was abuse. Which there is was why he, mm-hmm. when his mother, who he thought was his sister, ended up taking him away eventually, yes, right? Yeah, yes, okay. just to get him out of that. Yeah. But yeah, I think we have probably all had that thought, like, I had some pretty terrible shit happen. How did I not end up being a sociopath mm-hmm, or a psychopath? Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't... Nobody knows the answer to that question. Yeah. So, you know, instead, we'll watch Dragon Slayer, you know, and channel our dark... Right. <laughs> our right. dark fantasies that way. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it's a much healthier... It is. Uh, ...use of, please, don't kill people. Yeah, no matter what the adults say, you know, they're trying to limit our access uh, as yeah, kids. Yeah. So coming back to Tipper Gore like we talked so, about on another episode. But, <laughs> like, my argument for that is always what Stephen King says is that writing about it and I think reading it and watching horror in the same way kind of has the same cathartic effect where mm-hmm. you, you start to you're able to live it in a safe environment yes. and you don't have to live it in real life. You know, you can, you can take your brain down that road and play out all the scenarios, but then, you know, you don't, you're not going to jail for it. Right. You didn't actually kill someone. You don't, you know, you're not turning into a werewolf, but <laughs> yeah. you get to see, how it would happen. Right, right. And I think even though I have not seen all of American Werewolf in London, I remember, I think it came out in 83, so I would have been 11 years old. It was all over. It was very heavily promoted. Mm-hmm. That transformation scene was all anybody was talking about. I mean, I remember Siskel and Ebert, you know, <laughs> our two core, you know, film reviewers back in yeah. the day. I remember them talking about it. And I think this is another path that people can follow with horror is some kids, they watch that and they're like, I, I want to create those effects. Right. So you've got a whole thread of horror that is deeply about the effects. And back in the day, I think more what they, I think what they term it practical effects, mm-hmm. which it's like it's made, it's right. it's physically made, not CGI. Right. And that, you know, that gets kids really into monsters, into makeup, into gore. And that's where, back in the day and now, resurged, if mm-hmm. that's a word, is a, man- is a magazine like Fangoria. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or you've got uh, a dedicated horror fan magazine. They still do, you know, it's published quarterly now. They will still do a segment, I believe, each time in that magazine where they literally will take you through how to create the makeup, the physical makeup or effect for something. Oh, cool. Which is cool. Yeah. It's a little bit of a throwback, but I think when it comes to make, I don't know. I mean, 
I think we all really dig practical effects now because everything is CGI. Yes, absolutely. So, and when CGI is done poorly, it, it really... Oh, it's bad. It's really bad. Yeah. I do. One of the things that really struck me, too, that Martin said was that American Werewolf in London... You know, I mean, I think he would have been a teenager when he Mm -hmm. saw this. The first and last time that he was really scared. And I think we, as horror fans, we have that now. It's like, I would love to be just genuinely, viscerally scared again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can be disturbed. You can even still kind of watch some scenes in a movie through your Mm -hmm. fingers Mm -hmm. As you get older, I think that terror and fear is replaced by the sense of dread, mm-hmm. which is intense. It creates a lot of pressure. It's what makes a good film. Right. But it's different than, like, just straight up being scared. Yeah, yeah. And I miss that, too. Mm-hmm. I miss that, too. That normally doesn't happen to me, like, in the movie. Or when I'm watching the movie, it happens. I've talked about this before, like 3 a.m. potty time. You know, <laughs> I get up to pee and then I'm like, oh no, now I'm terrified. Yep. Yep. Or remember, there have been nights that I have watched the movie at your house twice. <laughs> You're like, this watch me, watch me go across the street. <laughs> yeah, please watch me. Do not go inside until you see me actually enter the door of my home because all of a sudden now Hartford Drive is a terrifying place. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> um, I guess the last the last thing that I had personally was just this idea that. Um, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, that because it captures your imagination and it does this to you when you're young, it it, it is an abiding love in a way mm-hmm. that um, you can't always count on from other people. Yeah. You, do, you will, um, for those of us who are really into horror, or whatever you're into, whatever mm-hmm. it is, it, reading, I mean, in whatever genre you read, that will always be there for you mm-hmm. no matter what. Right. The and nostalgia is really a strong emotion. It is. And it, you know, like even when you smell that same perfume that, you know, your mom wore when you were a kid or something like, or your grandmother or, um, and you're just transported back to being, you know, little itty bitty. And it it has that same feeling of, like, time travel. Yeah. 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 I think that's, that's an important... That's in all of the senses, like the role that the senses play mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in memory and nostalgia are so closely linked. Which I think is also why people are... S- get so invested in in films in all of their forms like it's one thing to have access to the film on streaming service but it's another thing to own the blu-ray and to own the um the vh or the dvd and the vhs and you know have a copy of the soundtrack or all of these things it's, I can, it, 
there's part of me that's like, well, that's a waste of money. And then there's that other part of me that knows that every time I read a book, when I read that same book over and over again, I get something new from it or I find something new that I hadn't really like thought about before and getting a movie in a different format or with a director's commentary or something like that, getting that kind of accessing that new feeling again and, you know, combining the novelty with the nostalgia is really powerful. Yeah, it definitely is. That's great. Which, you know, he talks about Star Wars. And I think that, I think this goes both ways, especially with Star Wars, because it's such a divisive franchise. Some For some people, get, getting that nostalgia can ruin it. And then for other people, it just makes it even deeper. Right. You know? Right. With the exception of Jar Jar Binks, because he's, exactly. he's Let's not, yeah. universally. If anyone out there listening to us just love Jar Jar Binks, please DM us on Twitter Write at Final Deer yeah. or send us an email, dearfinalgirl at gmail.com, because I, you know, I want to delve into your psyche. Yeah. I want to understand. Or let us know, like, you know, tell us about your... Uh, this is a great segue. We need letters. We want your letters. We So, you know, if you love Jar Jar Binks, tell hey, us about it. we'll sit down and watch. He, he appeared in The Phantom Menace, right? Yes. Which... Hey, if you love Jar Jar Binks, we will totally deviate from our largely horror format. I will force myself to rewatch The Phantom Menace. A movie called The Phantom Menace is not considered horror and Godzilla is come on let's let's we could I don't think we're bending too far no horror sci-fi fantasy you yeah, know sure. we can we can yeah. expand yeah all right well thank you again Martin for your submission it was absolutely fantastic and we love hearing your origin stories so folks yeah. submit those as well yeah yeah right. uh, dear final girl at gmail.com or DM us on Twitter at final dear that's us. And we'll see you next week. Yep. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye. Tune in next time for another origin story from your horror community. Till next time, this is Dear Final Girl. Remember, stay alive out there.